Romans 6, verses 1 through 14, this is God's word. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit that makes us alive together in Christ. We thank you for your son, whom you sent to purchase our redemption so that we might live. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your love that would send your son. Lord, teach us from your word. Encourage us Strengthen us, empower us, give us perspective to live each day for your glory that we might find the fullness of joy in our presence with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, kids, uh, who are my kids? I see Owen. Anybody middle school, high school? I have a question for you. Um, What is a rhetorical question? What's a rhetorical question? Anybody? Yeah. A question that is asked but shouldn't be answered. Good, yeah. It's a question that you ask not to get an answer, but to make a point, right? The point that you want to make is actually in the question. And so, for example, kids, if your dad says, how are you going to keep your room neat if you throw all your clothes on the floor and never put them away? If he asks you that question, he's not looking for an answer as if you can somehow make your room clean by throwing your clothes on the floor, right? He's making a point. You can't. You can't have a clean room if your clothes are all over the floor. That's how a rhetorical question works, right? The answer is in the question. Well, our passage today in Romans 6 is all about a rhetorical question. But to make sense of that question, I need to set the context, right? We're jumping into the middle of this book, chapter 6. The first five chapters of Romans show us several things 
Uh, They show us that every person besides Jesus who has ever lived has sinned, and we deserve God's judgment. But these first five chapters also show us that God has saved us by grace through Jesus Christ, by faith alone. It's not anything we deserve. Uh, It's not on the basis of anything that we can do. We're saved on the basis of what Christ has done for us. Our salvation is all grace. A great definition that I heard of grace from Jerry Bridges is God's riches at Christ's expense. We get God's riches at Christ's expense. God considers us to be righteous. He accepts us simply because Christ has lived a righteous life in our place and he's died on the cross to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. And so after spending five chapters making this point, Paul explains at the end of chapter five, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And that leads him to anticipate an objection. He states at the beginning of our passage today, chapter six, verse one, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? This seems too good to be true, Paul. It doesn't make any sense. In other words, if if our sins can never exhaust God's grace and our moral efforts cannot contribute anything, one bit to our salvation, what's the point of being good at all? If we're forgiven, why bother change? But Paul argues in this chapter that the gospel gives us the most powerful motivation and basis for change imaginable. His answer is the rhetorical question that I mentioned earlier. He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He's not looking for an answer to that question. He's making a point. The question is his point. He says, you can only ask a question like that if you don't understand the gospel, if you don't get it. If you've experienced the gospel, you would look at sin and say, sin, you're dead to me. We're done. Now, if you're thinking, you're asking, how is that possible? What in the world does that really mean? Because if you're honest, you still sin. Paul spends the rest of the chapter explaining his answer. And what we'll see is that the gospel does, in fact, lead to a transformed life. And the basis of that change flows from this idea of our union in Christ. Not just the idea, but the reality of our union with Christ. That union, that spiritual connection that we have with Christ gives us a new perspective on our sin. And it gives us power to change in a way that glorifies God. And so let's jump into the first point. Our our union with Christ gives us a new perspective, a new perspective. And we see this by the repetition of the word no in verses 3 and 6 and 9. Paul, throughout this passage, is, is reinforcing what we know to be true, how we ought to think, and what is it that we know? What perspective does the gospel give us? The first is that we know that we are both Dead and alive. Not dead or alive, 
right? Dead and alive. We're dead to sin and alive to God. We've died to sin because through faith in Christ, we're connected to Christ's death for sin. Our baptism symbolizes, among other things, it symbolizes our union with Christ, our spiritual connection with him so that what is true of him becomes true of us. He died and so we died. Notice the purpose of Christ's death. Verse 2, we died to sin. Verse 3, we were baptized into his death. Verse 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Verse 4, in order that. It's a purpose statement. All this happened in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, here's the point, we too may live a new life. We too may live a new life. Jesus died so that you would live a new life, a life no longer characterized by the sin that you used to do, but a life that reflects Jesus' life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a new creation in Christ. There's a new spiritual vitality in you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. This new life should begin to look like and anticipate what your life will be like in heaven. And that's Paul's point in verse 5. He says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so if you have faith in Christ, you now have the ability to live differently than you could otherwise, even in this life, as you await the resurrection to come. Paul is not saying that Christians never sin anymore. He's saying that because of our union with Christ, we cannot continue to live in sin in the same way we once did. While we'll always struggle with sin, this side of glory, we shouldn't always struggle with the same sins in the same way. There's a divine resistance in you if you're a follower of Jesus, a God-given power, resurrection power to fight against sin. You have, by God's grace, the ability to break sinful habits, to live a life that is being transformed. When baby elephants used to be trained for the circus, a strong chain was tied to its leg and the elephant would try to, to pull free of the chain but eventually give up the fight. It wasn't big enough, it wasn't strong enough to break free from the chain. And once the, elephant, once the elephant's will was broken, they would replace this heavy chain by a thin rope but the elephant didn't try to break free. It had all the strength that it needed as it grew up to snap the rope but it acts as if it's under the power of the rope. Paul wants us to know that we are dead to sin and alive to God. The rope has been broken, but you stay standing in place because you don't believe you've been set free. Our union with Christ should give us a new perspective. God wants you to know that you are dead and alive, dead to sin and alive to God. And that's closely related to the second thing God wants us to know, which is that Christians are children of God, no longer slaves to sin. This point is, I think, much more clear in the New Living Translation. It does a little interpretation for us. And so let me read from, uh, read from the New Living Translation beginning in verse 6. 
says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. So that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. We haven't been set free from sin's presence in our lives. We still have sin. We still struggle with sin. Yet, that day will come in the resurrection. We will be set free from its presence. But now, Paul says, we have been set free from its dominating power in our lives. You have the ability to change because of the power of God that has set you free. In chapter 8, Paul is going to add, uh, chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We're no longer slaves. We've been made children of God. And Paul's point in all of this is to get us to think this way about ourselves. We're to have this perspective about ourselves. If, if you're a Christian, this is true whether you understand it or not, whether you think about it or not. But our problem is that too often we think of ourselves as helpless in the face of our sin. It's just I'm a sinner. I just can't not do this. But that's not true. It's not true. The movie 12 Years a Slave illustrates this need to think about ourselves, our identity in this way. It's a hard movie to watch. It's a good movie. It's a hard movie to watch because it does a good job of portraying the injustice and the brutality and the horrific nature of slavery. The movie is based on the true story of a man named Solomon Northrup, a free African-American who was living in New York as a freedman, but he was kidnapped and he was sold into slavery and he was falsely given the identity of a man named Platt, who was a runaway slave. He's eventually sold to a harsh plantation owner named Edwin Epps. Throughout his time as a slave, he's systematically beaten. His identity is stripped away. He has to call every white person master and they refer to him as boy or even more demeaning terms to put him in his place. It's incredibly offensive, dehumanizing. And it's a poignant picture of what our sin does to us. Sin screams at us and beats us down. It seeks to make us think that we're powerless before it. And eventually, in the movie, Solomon is finally able to get word to his friends back in New York about his situation, and his friend, Mr. Parker, finally shows up 12 years later with papers proving that he is a freedman. And the plantation owner, Epps, goes berserk. As, as Parker leads Solomon to his carriage to take him away from the plantation, Ed Epps, the, the plantation owner, grabs Solomon and he yells at him, Platt, you come back here, boy. Parker firmly says, unhand him. Epps retorts, Platt is my property. Actually, he uses a far more offensive word than that. And Parker corrects him 
by reminding him of his true identity. He is Mr. Solomon Northrup. As Parker continues to lead Solomon away, Epps yells at Solomon, I own you. I own you. You belong to me. And Parker reassures him, pay him no mind. And they keep walking. They get in the carriage. And they leave the plantation behind forever. This exchange is offensive. This movie offends us, and it should. What was done to African Americans was horrific. It should cause us to resonate with the appalling reality of continuing to submit to our sin. Sin, like an evil plantation owner, is constantly yelling at us, I own you. I own you. It tries to make us think there is no hope for escape. And so I ask you, how do you think about your sin? Do you think of sin as a pleasure that God tries to keep you from? That God tells you certain things not to do because he wants to cramp your style, that this really is the way to life? Do you think of your sin as a pleasure that God is trying to keep you from? Or do you recognize it for what it truly is? an evil former master that wants to bring you back under its control and continue to brutalize you. I think if you reflected for a week on the recurring sin in your life in these terms, it would help you see it for what it is. It's not a harmless little idiosyncrasy or a guilty pleasure. You would recognize just how incongruous it is for you to continue going back to it believer in Christ, through your union with Christ, you've been set free. Do you know that? When you understand that you're a child of God, a beloved heir of the kingdom, and you recognize sin as a slave master, it gives you the perspective you need to leave it behind. Our union with Christ gives us a new perspective on sin, but it does more than that. It also gives us power to change, power to change. Verse 12, Paul tells us how we should respond to this gospel. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Sin, since the reign of sin has been broken by the gospel, we must resist all attempts on sin's part to recover its dominion over us. Simply put, Paul is telling us not to let sin control the way we live, not to give in to its desires. And Paul gives two practical ways for how to do that in this passage. And the first is in verse 11. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You need to meditate on the perspective I've been talking about. It's not enough to just kind of hear it and know it and move on. You have to Sit with it and reflect on it and meditate on it constantly, continually reminding yourself of what's true of you in Christ, what your new identity in Christ is because of Jesus, so that when sin yells at you, I own you, you recognize the lie and you don't give in. We still struggle with sin's influence on our lives, but that 
word struggle is key. Unbelievers don't struggle with sin. They may seek to overcome a bad habit, but they do not see that habit as a sin against a holy God. Believers, on the other hand, struggle. They're in the fight against sin. The struggle is evidence that we've been set free. We are in the fight. And so as you struggle, don't give up. Keep reminding yourself of what is true of you in Jesus because of the gospel. Keep preaching the gospel to yourself by thanking God for making you dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Second, Paul says that we need to dedicate our lives to God. Paul gets very practical in verses 13 and 14. He says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law but under grace. This is practical and tangible. Think of the parts of your body that lead you to sin. Does your eye cause you to sin? Are you looking at things you shouldn't be looking at? Are you coveting something that someone else has? Are you too concerned with appearances and not enough with character and substance? Then confess the sin of your eyes. Thank God for the forgiveness that you have in Christ and count yourself uh, dead to sin and alive to God. And then dedicate your eyes to God. God, would I see through your eyes? Right? Would you give me your perspective on other people? Would I view them the way you view them? Would I see lost people as sheep without a shepherd? Would you give me compassion for them even as you have shown your compassion for me? Does your hand cause you to sin? Have you expressed violence toward another person physically or in your heart? Have you used your hands in ways that do not honor God? Confess it. Preach the gospel to yourself and dedicate your hands to God. Maybe it's your mouth. You've used words to cut or boast or lie or to, uh, instead of to encourage, instead of to share the gospel and to speak the truth in love. Or your feet have taken you places you shouldn't go rather than being the beautiful feet of those who bring good news or whatever. You get the idea. Ask yourself, where have I lived like a slave instead of a child of God? It's not just about stopping sin. It's about positively living for God's glory, offering your whole life and every part of you, all the instruments of your body as instruments of righteousness. And as you glorify God, you will enjoy Him now and forever. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, then what I've been talking about doesn't yet apply to you, but it can. It can. It can before you leave this room today. All you need to do is place your faith in Jesus. Acknowledge that you need him, that you can't escape the sin in your life on your own, but ask him, pray to him, God, set me free, save me. Thank you for sending Jesus. Change me to be more like him. If you are trusting Christ, you're united to Christ and you are free. The question is, are you living like it? Or are you sneaking back 
to your old master and letting him abuse you again. Consider yourself dead to sin and stop serving your old master. Instead, lean more fully into the reality of your union with Christ by constantly, continually reminding yourself of the perspective of the gospel, by availing yourself of the power it provides to follow Jesus. You may have noticed that we've moved our time of renewal this morning after the sermon. We wanted to give you an opportunity to confess your sin in response to the word preached today. And then after the words of encouragement, we'll sing a song of consecration as a prayer to God. Use this to offer every part of your body to him as an instrument of righteousness. So let's confess our sin together. It's displayed for you on the screen. Let's pray together. You asked for my hands that you might use them for your purpose. I gave them for a moment, then withdrew them, for the work was hard. You asked for my mouth to speak against, in, against injustice. I gave you a whisper that I might not be accused. You asked for my eyes to see the pain of poverty. I closed them, for I did not want to see. You asked for my life that you might work through me. I gave a small part that I might not get too involved. Lord, forgive my calculated efforts to serve you only when it is convenient for me to do so, only in those places where it is safe to do so, and only with those who make it easy to do so. Father, forgive me, renew me, send me out as a usable instrument that I might take seriously the meaning of your cross. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship.